the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadrezzar. Now at that time the king of Babylon's army was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Wherefore dost thou prophesy? And say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. And he shall bring Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I visit him, saith the Lord. Though ye fight with the Chaldeans, ye shall not prosper. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalem, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So Hanamel, mine uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, By my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field that was in Anathoth of Hanamel, mine uncle's son, and weighed him the money, even seventeen shekels of silver. And I subscribed the deed and sealed it and called witnesses and weighed him the money and the balances. So I took the deed of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. And I delivered the deed of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Masaiah, in the presence of Hannibal, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the deed of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the guard. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, this deed of the purchase which is sealed, and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and, and fields and vineyards shall yet again be bought in this land. Now after I had delivered the deed of the purchase unto Barak the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord Jehovah, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for thee, who showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work, whose eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men, to give every one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. 
who did set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, both in Israel and among other men, and madest thee a name as at this day, and didst bring forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, and with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror, and gavest them this land which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold, the mounds, they are come unto the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken is come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. And thou hast said unto me, O Lord Jehovah, buy thee the field for money and call witnesses, whereas the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it, and the Chaldeans that fight against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it, with the houses upon whose roofs they have offered incense unto Baal, and poured out drink offerings unto other gods, to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only that which was evil in my sight from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. For this city hath been to me a provocation of mine anger and of my wrath from the day that they built it, even unto this day, that I should remove it from before my face. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, and the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they have turned unto me the back and not the face, and though I taught them rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction, and they have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Moloch, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause, the, to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city whereof ye say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, and by the famine, and by the pestilence, Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. And I will bring them again unto this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from following them to do them good, and I will put my fear in their hearts, and that, that they may not depart from me, 
Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. And fields shall be bought in this land, whereof ye say it is desolate, without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields for money, and subscribe the deeds, and seal them, and call witnesses in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, and in the cities of the hill country, and in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captivity to return, said the Lord. Now we will not be able to go over quite a lot of what we said last week. So any who are really interested in knowing something of the introduction to Jeremiah and something of its authorship, I suggest you listen, arranged uh, to listen to the tape um, of last week. But what we will do, we will begin with a point that we finished on last week, and that was the key to the book of Jeremiah. We will take that now, this evening, and we trust we shall complete our studies uh, in this book. I think I have already pointed out to you that Jeremiah is a peculiar book in a variety of ways. And one of its peculiarities is the great difficulty that there is over outline. <clears throat> um, the, usually speaking, we have a key, a theme, and the whole book is but the uh, unfolding uh, or the illustration, the development of that theme. The book of Jeremiah is different. Uh, it, it's, all, it's most remarkable, in a sense, that its actual... Uh, substance uh, is not the development in one way uh, of its key uh, and its theme. <clears throat> However, we shall say a little bit more of that as we uh, go through it. It's quite clear from all that we said last week, I think, to you all, that the key is bound up with Jeremiah himself more than the message that he brought. Uh, that may well be one of the reasons why um, there is a, a confusing uh, chronological order in the book. Generally speaking, the book is um, on in the very broadest line, on the very broadest lines, in chronological order. But within each division of Jeremiah, there is the most remarkable confusion most remarkable confusion, such a confusion actually that many scholars have given up literally uh, in despair. For instance, we find that uh, the reigns of the earlier kings are at the end, reigns of the later kings are at the beginning, the prophecies that were given later on in Jeremiah's life come early, and so there's a complete confusion and it's quite obvious that uh, this is not just haphazard, but there is evidently some very real reason why Jeremiah selected uh, this order um, without any regard whatsoever to uh, chronology. 
Then again, um, it may well be that a pointer, more evidence to the fact that the key to Jeremiah is the man himself and not the message, is not only the uh, chronological uh, order, that's one, uh, if, if it's not the message, his actual message, the unfolding of it, that is the most vital thing about this book, but the man, then uh, there may well be. Uh, uh, there may be a reason for that chronological disorder. That's the point. Uh, with Isaiah, it couldn't have existed. It would have messed up the whole book and the very, um, the very meaning uh, of that part of God's word. But with Jeremiah, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if the prophecy is not in chronological order because the man is the message. That's the point. And secondly, this is the only book in the Old Testament which has the most remarkable variations in the Septuagint version. Generally speaking, the Septuagint is looked upon as the great outside support of our Hebrew text of the Old Testament. But here... Uh, there are the widest variations, not only in the words used, but in the actual order of the material. Again, it does not matter. Uh, the, the, the message, as far as we can see, is not so important. It's the man. And therefore, so long as the order of the material brings out the man and gets us to the heart of the thing, arrests us possibly, stops us from going astray, if we had it all beautifully ordered, we should be all wrapped up with the message and not with the man. But because of the way in which the material is presented, most scholars are left with the most remarkable impression of the man. That is the, the remark. You, all of you, if you want to, go up into the library, go anywhere, take out any book, any commentary, which has Jeremiah in it, and look at it. And I, you, I can vouch that you will find... Um, support for what I'm saying to you. All will say to you, well, they don't understand the outline. A man like Dr. Scroggie, he spent months and months and months arranging and rearranging the whole book of Jeremiah so that his students could read it in chronological order. And that's happened by many others. Others are just given up in uh, almost disgust. Uh, and left it, uh, or they say that there's just, it seems to be fragmentary, there doesn't seem to be any shape or form to it at all. Then again, another somewhat remarkable thing is that if the message is bound up with the man, or rather if the key to this book is the man, we must have the most dogmatic and decisive evidence that Jeremiah indeed wrote it. Now, I mentioned to you last week that of all the prophetical books, Jeremiah is the one alone which again and again states that it is the words of Jeremiah and indeed goes so far as to tell us what are the words of Jeremiah and what are the uh, secretary's additions uh, to it, his comments on it. But furthermore, this book is the only one that clearly and more than once tells us the method by which we have come to have the book, that it was dictated by mouth, by the very mouth of Jeremiah to his secretary, if you want a, uh, one word, but in actual fact his dear beloved friend, Baruch, who took it down word from word, it says here, with pen and ink on scrolls. 
we have nowhere else in the scripture so clear uh, a statement as to the way in which this book came to us. So it is really, strangely enough, one of the few books over which there's been very little controversy concerning the authorship. Most conservative and orthodox scholarship concurs with uh, the voice uh, of tradition, that, that the word of God itself is quite clear that the, the author is Jeremiah. Now, if that is so, we have three uh, small subsidiary um, sidelines which would suggest that what we have said about Jeremiah himself being uh, the message and the lasting, uh, uh, the lasting thing the Lord wants to write upon our hearts in this part of his word uh, is indeed so. We have said then that it seems to us it's quite clear that the message here of this part of God's word is to do with the man. And the material and everything else is secondary and almost subsidiary, uh, so long as it leads us to an understanding of the man and gives us an insight into the prophetic character. That's the point. Uh, we have, of course, this in other books, but no book do we have it as clearly as in um, uh, Jeremiah. Scroge and Campbell Morgan and quite a few other well-known scholars have described Jeremiah as a prophetic autobiography. That is putting into a few words what we're saying. This book is, in, is to present us with the man for a one great reason. What is the function of Jeremiah? The function of Jeremiah in God's great purpose in the last days of the Old Testament age or dispensation was preparation for recovery. His was a day in which everything was lost. The people of God had become so familiar with the things of God. They, they loved sin. They wanted the things of the world. They wanted to consort with the world. They didn't want the Lord. They wanted to have the Lord as a kind of facade, as a kind of aerial covering, if you get what I mean, a kind of roof over them. But what went on underneath the roof uh, didn't bother them at all. Every kind of thing they felt it was perfectly right to bring it in. Why shouldn't they? And if you read Jeremiah's great indictment of them, you will discover that the people uh, were, as the uh, Revised Standard Version puts it, were insolent. Their attitude was an insolent attitude, familiar, contemptuous, and insolent as far as the Lord was concerned. Their attitude was that the Lord brought them out into the land, and therefore, the Lord, they were doing the Lord a great favor to be there. And so let the Lord stand by them. That was all. He, 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 he ought to do them a few favors. Uh, and their attitude was, he will never leave the land. He will never leave the city. He will never leave us because we are his people. The function of Jeremiah was to be an instrument in God's hands to prepare for recovery. At the very point... Uh, of decline and apostasy and backsliding before actually the judgment of God had fallen upon his people, the Lord was already preparing for recovery 
Now that's just like the Lord. When judgment is in the air, the Lord is already starting to prepare for recovery. When he knows he's going to give his people over to some terrible judgment or allow something to happen to them, to purge, to, to correct, to chasten, you will find the Lord is already well ahead uh, of it in his plans and in his activity. Jeremiah, from before he was born, when he was still in his mother's womb, had already been appointed by God and was going to be prepared by God in time for this great uh, uh, function of preparing for recovery. At first, it does not seem very apparent as you read the book of Jeremiah. Or we say to them, where is this talk? You talk about preparation for recovery. I can't see it in the book of Jeremiah. He seems to be all talking about judgment and everything. How do you say that his, his, his function is preparation, preparing for the recovery of what is going to be lost? Ezekiel, of course, prepared for for what was lost, recovery of what was lost, and so did Daniel. Jeremiah was preparing for what was going to be lost. Spiritually, it was already lost, but outwardly, it had not yet actually been lost. Well, you look with me at two or three scriptures, and I think it will become a little more apparent. In Jeremiah 30, verse 1, Jeremiah 30, verse 1, listen to this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days will come, saith the Lord, that I will turn again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now this is a most remarkable fact. It means that God actually took hold of a man and his whole function was not in his own life done. In other words, his greatest and primary function was to do with a generation that hadn't even been born. That is the most remarkable fact. Therefore, all the rest that we shall find about the ministry of Jeremiah in his own day, whilst it is tremendously important in its own uh, sphere, is nevertheless essentially directed to the future. His was a ministry of preparation for recovery. And not what so many people think, gloomy Jeremiah. All we say of someone, he's a Jeremiah. If he's got absolute, absolutely pessimistic, absolutely not a ray of light in his countenance at all, we call him a Jeremiah. There couldn't be anything farther in some ways from the truth. Jeremiah indeed had a very difficult and unhappy and hard message to bring, but he knew in his own heart that his function was recovery. And that must have made it all the more difficult and more uh, made him all the more sensitive to the rejection that came his way. Then if you look at chapter 1, verse 10, we find it again. Um, rather solemn little phrase in the Lord's calling of Jeremiah's commission. I have, chapter 1, verse 10, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now mark that. Four negative things. Pluck up, break down, destroy and overthrow. But it doesn't stop there. 
Many people's appreciation of dear Jeremiah is that. They think his whole life was uh, plucking up, breaking down, destroying and overthrowing. It is not so. His, his destructive ministry, his negative ministry, always had the positive in view. It was to build and to plant. Now that's most important that we should all understand that now because it is an integral part of ministry for recovery that there must be this very type of ministry, uh, a negative side to it, which is very defined, uh, because uh, it is unto something positive. He had to clear the ground. That's why you get such a lot of his harking back to what they've done, pointing out the failure, um, speaking again and again of the judgment of the Lord. He was clearing the ground all the time throwing overboard their erroneous ideas, their fallacies, their delusions. Oh, they were filled with spiritual, pious ideas of their security and everything else. And he was just like a bomb in the midst of it. He blew the whole thing sky high and left them without anything whatsoever. Uh, then when he did that, he had a message for them. That having uh, blasted all their ramifications... Uh, and so on, he was able to speak to them of something further. In that same chapter from 11 to 19, you have this whole question of his ministry, his function being preparation for recovery, more clearly brought out. From verse, in verse 11 to 12, those two verses, the Lord gives him a vision of an almond rod, and he sees this almond rod bud and burst into um, bloom and so on, leaf. And uh, the Lord says, that's all right, Jeremiah. Uh, I want you to understand that I watch over my word to perform it. You see? You've seen this? It was a pun on words, actually. If you look in your margin, you'll see it's a pun on, on Hebrew words. Um, the Lord said, I watch. I watch over my word. Then he unfolded something secondly to him. And that was that a boiling cauldron from the north which was a picture and a symbol of judgment that was to come out of the north, which was to be the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. First the Lord said, it's all right, Jeremiah, my sovereignty is in charge. I'm absolutely sovereign. Everything is in my hand. Uh, don't you worry. I'm watching over my word to perform it. Everything I tell you I will do, whether it is judgment or whether it is recovery and restoration, I'm going to perform it. That's the first thing. Get that clear. Secondly, Jeremiah, I'm afraid that your ministry is almost wholly to do with judgment. With this, with this terrible scourge that's going to come out of the north. And then he goes on to say, don't worry, I've made you a fortified city and a brazen wall against this, this land. You'll be all right because I'm with you uh, to deliver you. So we can see from those references that it is indeed this question of preparation for recovery. But I want you to mark very carefully that it is not actual recovery. Now, this is most important. Jeremiah's function is not actual recovery. It is preparation for recovery. And that is the most important point uh, in so far that I can make. I have said it is preparation for recovery and not the actual recovery. For instance, if you look at Daniel 9... And verse 1 to 3, you will find this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, who was made king of the realm of the Chaldeans, 
In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet for the accomplishing of the desolations of Jerusalem, even 70 years. Now that's very interesting, because it just makes us realize again, do you see, here is Jeremiah's ministry coming into its own. It's coming into its own. Daniel came into an understanding of God's purpose by what Jeremiah had said many, many years before. By reading what he had said, he came into an understanding. Now the interesting thing is that Daniel was part of this preparatory ministry for recovery. But Daniel could not come into his function, which was prayer and intercession, until first he'd been linked up with Jeremiah. It was through reading the books, through studying the Word of God, that uh, Daniel came into an understanding. Now in 2 Chronicles 36, Two Chronicles chapter 36, and um, from verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And then in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1, you have more or less the same words again. You see, what does this really mean? Why has the Holy Spirit put uh, this... Um, mentioned the words of Jeremiah, uh, the beginning of Ezra and the end of the book of Chronicles, because it is preparing us for the actual recovery. That's the point. It's preparing us for the actual recovery. Jeremiah's ministry was preparation for recovery. Oh, I do trust that we could see that quite clearly. And we must remember that this Preparatory ministry is exercised for the most part in exile. Uh, Jeremiah's was actually uh, exercised the most part in the land, but in apostate, backslidden conditions, until finally he was taken into Egypt, where he lived the last years of his life and died uh, in Egypt. Ezekiel and Daniel, their whole life and ministry was in exile conditions. Now mark you, this is the point we've got to get at. We must never think that there can be no real essential ministry of God that is not on the right ground. There can be. Preparation for recovery is often, if not nearly always, in exile conditions. That is, it is not on church ground. It is not on the ground of God in that sense at all. It's a way. It's, in a way, it's where it should not be. Among, amongst the people of God, living where they ought not to be, in a sphere to which they do not belong. You see, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, here all three of them, they're essential, integral parts of the ministry. Their whole function was not actual recovery, but to prepare a people for recovery. In other words, to collect together, to instruct, to educate, to develop, people who in their turn would be the instruments of recovery. Theirs was a great preparatory uh, ministry, preparatory to recovery. Daniel's was a good 70 years before there was even a slightest sign of a return to the land from exile, from captivity. And it was so uh, with Ezekiel. Daniel, of course, overlived it. He actually saw the return, but he never went back with them. I think many of us would be most censorious 
uh, about that. We would have thought that Daniel had really let everyone down very badly uh, to have stayed uh, in exile and died in exile. But he overlived it by two years at least and died in exile. He did not return. Although his whole life and his whole function, his whole ministry was bound up uh, with it. As we have said, there are three great preparatory ministries for recovery in the Old Testament, uh, in the last days of the Old Testament uh, dispensation. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. It is very interesting that in the prophetical books we get first Isaiah, who lays the foundation of all prophecy, of all the prophetical books. Then we get these three preparatory ministries immediately. When we come to Daniel, we've come to the end of the major prophets. We have then only the minor prophets. The Holy Spirit has made a tremendous point of this. First of all, Isaiah is the foundation of everything, the great purpose of God in its entirety, fully comprehended in what he saw. And then we get Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Now, we have got to mm, see quite clearly that all these three have one great object, and their object is the recovery of God's city, of God's house, of God's city, and of God's land. The, the house is destroyed, the city is destroyed, the land is desolate, it has been depopulated. Now, the object or the objective of the, this great threefold ministry of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel is to get back in God's time a remnant who will rebuild the house, rebuild Jerusalem, and repopulate the land. Um, you understand, I just cannot qualify all that I'm saying. I'm just relying on what we've said in times past. Um, now, these three are all part of one great phase in, in God's movement. Indeed, they are telescopic extensions. That's the only way I can explain them. They are telescopic extensions. You get Jeremiah, and out of Jeremiah comes Ezekiel. You get Ezekiel, and out of Ezekiel comes Daniel. The three are all bound up together, and they all rely on each other. There's a lot of Jeremiah in Ezekiel, and there's a lot of Jeremiah and Ezekiel in Daniel. In other words, all of them are like um, just the extensions of one ministry, that's all. Each one taking us on one step further uh, in God's purpose. That, I think, is most re remarkable. They were the instrument God used to keep alive in Babylon a little group to keep them alive to God, to keep them alive not only to God but to keep them alive to God's purpose and in due time to produce their return. <clears throat> now I have drawn this rather poor um, uh, diagram on the board because I thought it might help you uh, to understand a little uh, of these three preparatory ministries. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Each one an extension of the other. Ezekiel and Daniel gradually coming out, as it were, of Jeremiah. Each overlapping the other, each taking the other's function and ministry one step further and advance. In Jeremiah's day, we have the exile. Um, toward the end of his life, the city collapses, the house is burned. He actually lived through it. He saw the whole thing raised to the ground. He saw the whole ravaging of Jerusalem and of the land. And then the dispersion begins. 
and the people are taken off into exile for the majority never to return. So I put in brown dispersion, and here I have marked this dispersion because they, they went on in dispersion right through to the times of the Lord. In the times, uh, the day of the Lord, there were still the thousands and thousands of the dispersion Jews, the Jews in the dispersion, who had remained all those centuries in the dispersion, bringing up families, carrying on their life, as God's people, far off in another land. Uh, then I have, we have this other green line which marks the return in 536 B.C. Now you can see, with this great dispersion and the people of God all settled uh, in Babylon and uh, way f far away from uh, the promised land and from the house and the city, you have the ministry of these three men. And these three men are keeping alive, alive. They are keeping alive, as it were, a little, thin, human thread of people who, in the end, are going to return due wholly to the ministry and the testimony of these three men. If it hadn't been for these three men, there would be no return. These three men were the preparation for their return and ultimately <coughs> issued in the return to the land. It is most interesting that when the actual recovery takes place, we have another three great men, Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They correspond to these three. And in three further great stages, the actual recovery is effected. When the remnant go back, they build the temple, they build the city, they build the land, and that in turn brings Christ in so many hundreds of years after. Well, I don't know whether that's of any help to you at all, but there you are, it's there on the board. What can we really say when we come to this? Well, we must see one or two things quite clearly. One thing we must see is that uh, in Jeremiah, we have um, the essential character God needs for recovery in this preparation for recovery. In Ezekiel, we have a ministry of definition. That is a ministry of the word. And it's wholly taken up with the essential objective of God. In Daniel, we have the essential service which alone can produce the recovery, and that is intercession. Um, those three are the three great aspects uh, of this ministry. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Now we learn from that one or two things that might be a great corrective to narrowness. And it is simply this, that we can have godly character, real ministry of the word, and when I say real ministry of the word, I mean real ministry of the word, essential ministry of the world, word, living and capable of doing something, and we can also have real ministry of intercession and prayer, and it can all be in exile conditions. That's the point. In other words, we must be very, very careful in the way that we handle other people of God, whether in these days, now bringing it to our day, to the end of this New Testament age, um, we need a lot of discernment to know when we're touching something which is a preparatory ministry. 
which has it, which has an objective, which is the objective of God. It may be in exile conditions. It may not be on God's ground, but it may have its object to get to to get people, the people of God, into a right relationship with the Lord. And therefore, you can find real ministry of the word in in uh, such places and in, in such a sphere. And you can find real prayer ministry as well. We must remember that there are three great companies in at the end of the Old Testament. One, as we've often said, is represented by Esther, and that is a company that we find in the exile. They are quite happy to be in the exile. They never think of the house, they never think of the city, and they never think of the land. Uh, and yet God is with them. They have experiences of God. They're used of God. They're blessed of God, uh, and so on. But they are living in those conditions quite happily and will not think of returning. Still God delivers them. You have another small company uh, in, in the exile, and this company is represented by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And it is a very small company indeed, but these people are people who've seen God's objective, although they're not, they're not as it were, there. They've seen it, and they're working towards it, and all their prayer is involved with it. All their ministry and service is toward producing it. It may be in ministry of the word, it may be in prayer and intercession. It may be in character, just testimony. But these people have a preparatory ministry. Oh, I could mention many that I consider to be part of such a thing in our own day. People like Mrs. Penn Lewis and uh, uh, Andrew Murray and um, Pastor Stockmeyer, to mention just a few, F.B. Meyer, Campbell Morgan. And I could mention, oh, that would be risky, quite a number uh, who are contemporary today. Um, these, these, these people have a living ministry. They have a godly character, and they have a real service in prayer, many of them. And their great objective is the bringing in of God's Christ. Um, they they uh, are not on what we call on church ground, but that doesn't matter in one sense. They are part of a preparatory recovery. It's mostly very interesting for those of you who know, for instance, to trace the, the amazing extension that there is uh, from some of these phases of ministry between that, say, of Spurgeon, uh, that of Mrs. Penn Lewis, that of Andrew Murray, and so on. It's the most amazing extension, which happens again and again in, in these phases in God's economy. So we see that the key to Jeremiah is the essential character of God that he must have if there is going to be any recovery at all. That does not mean that we disregard or despise the message of Jeremiah or the ministry of Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah himself is the abiding message. All is lost in Jeremiah's day except in Jeremiah. But in Jeremiah, God has still got something. And his whole life is a testimony in itself for the day of recovery. Spent simply and wholly for that day of recovery which is uh, coming. His message did in actual fact lay the foundation for the return. But it is from Jeremiah himself that we learn uh, most. And we learn from him from his life, from his character, from his reactions, we learn, we discover the kind of, of character God must have in such uh, a ministry. 
Now, let's take the word of God. Let's take the book of Jeremiah. And let's look at just one or two. There are six things about character in the book of Jeremiah. It will entail quite a bit of looking up. What kind of character is it which Jeremiah expresses? What is the kind of character that God must have uh, if he's going to recover? The first thing we find is this, a completely surrendered character. Completely surrendered. It is a character which comes out of 100% devotion and abandonment to the Lord. You find it expressed symbolically in verse 9 of chapter 1. The very beginning of his ministry, the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. This was, in actual fact, almost the laying on of hands. It was a symbolic act by which the Lord, as it were, expressed the fact that Jeremiah was completely under the lordship of God. He was at his disposal. Absolutely at his disposal. Now, what do we mean by being completely surrendered? I think we mean three things. We mean, first of all, obedience. Now, if we look at chapter 15, we shall find that. Dean, verse 16. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy words were unto me a joy and the rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I sat not in the assembly of them that make merry nor rejoice. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual, and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Thou indeed be unto me as a deceitful brook, as waters that fail. Jeremiah's character was a completely surrendered character. There was nothing double, nothing two-faced. Nothing that was a facade about Jeremiah. He was completely surrendered to the Lord. It is very interesting that when the Lord lays hold of Jeremiah, at the very beginning when he's only a young man, that Jeremiah never argues with the Lord. All he says is that he's only a child. He says, how can I speak? How can I go forward with such a ministry? I'm only a child. I can't speak. But he doesn't argue. His life is wholly at the disposal of the Lord, if only the Lord will undertake for him completely. So we find obedience. And when we find obedience, we find faithfulness. And when we look at faithfulness, we see that there's a cost involved. And this is all bound up with being completely surrendered to the Lord. What was the obedience? Thy words were found, I did eat them. There was something absolutely obedient about Jeremiah. Throughout his life, he was absolutely obedient to the Lord. He didn't always do what the Lord wanted um, uh, joyfully, but he certainly did it. And he got through over each phase in his life. When the Lord, when the Lord ever said anything to Jeremiah, we can say one thing of him, he did it. And uh, he did it obediently. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. Why? Uh, are there so many of us that are spiritually lethargic and apathetic? Because when we find the word of the Lord, we don't eat them. We don't digest them. We don't feed on them. We just let them filter into the atmosphere, and then they're gone. And that's the end of it. 
That's the finish. But you see, um, the character here in Jeremiah was a character which never let anything from the Lord go by. It took anything from the Lord and thought about it, meditated upon it, reflected over it, digested it. Thy words were found and I did eat them. What was the result? Utter faithfulness. What was faithfulness? I sat no longer in the company of those that were merry and amongst the merrymakers. I didn't go to the feast anymore, he said. I sat alone. This was faithfulness. The result of eating the word of God, of obedience to the word of God, was the fact that he became a changed man. And what was quite legitimate for others to do, Jeremiah could not do. It is a strange fact that in this preparatory ministry for recovery, you find again and again um, much required of them which is legitimate, which is legitimate to others, but which they are not allowed to do. Faithfulness. All the way through the ministry and all the way through the book of Jeremiah, you will find this, this uh, thread, this theme of faithfulness. How utterly loyal Jeremiah was from beginning to end. You know, again and again, he suffered under indescribably at the hands of others. Uh, reads very much like uh, modern days and things that were done to him. And again and again, he was offered his life if he would just whittle down his message, if he would only compromise, if he would only be a little bit more uh, sort of uh, pol politic, diplomatic, uh, they would let him go. Because as far as they were concerned, he was a quizzling. The things he was saying were absolutely uh, taking the heart out of the people fighting. Uh, it wasn't quite the done thing, they felt. If you tone down, Jeremiah. You say that kind of thing. You're, you're, you're causing a lot of trouble. But you know, it's amazing that again and again, whatever happened, Jeremiah was utterly faithful to the word of the Lord. His obedience knew no limit whatsoever. You know, once he was put into stocks by the chief priest who was over the house of God, or one of the ruling priests, put him in, uh, into stocks for the night so that anyone could pelt him with what they wanted to pelt him with and just heap abuse on him uh, over the night and ha evidently had a bad time about it. In the morning he came and let him out, obviously thinking that Jeremiah would be only too glad to get out of the stocks and would probably thank this man very much for not keeping him there longer because it was a well-known fact that people were often put in the stocks and left there to die if people didn't go and feed them. When Jeremiah was let out of the stocks, the first thing he said to him was, your name's Pasha, but it's no longer Pasha in the eyes of God. It's, and he gave another name which simply meant devastation or something along that line. He said, because you're going to go into Babylon, you're going to die. And with that, he left him. That's the type of man Jeremiah was. He, he would not care two hoots if he lost his life, so long as he knew clearly that it was in utter obedience to God. Uh, his, uh, and in faithfulness to him. Now, there was a cost involved in that. And let us never forget that in being surrendered to the Lord, there is a cost. It's obvious. Anything that is not costly is not worthwhile. And in surrender to the Lord, there's a tremendous cost involved. It's not cheap. It's not easy. It's not superficial. It's something which cuts deep. Here were the words of the Lord. Well, they were, for Jeremiah, it was a ministry of judgment, a ministry of coming devastation. And it wasn't an easy thing for him to take it in, to absorb it, 
and then to have to go out in faithfulness uh, to a nation that was apostate and backslidden and voice and, and express uh, that word of the Lord. There was a cost involved. And it meant that Jeremiah, from being a popular, easygoing, uh, sought-after man, became, in actual fact, a lonely man in many respects. A man who was forsaken, a man uh, who was rejected. That was the cost involved. But it produced a kind of character. And the most interesting thing about Jeremiah is this, that his character was such that once he surrendered to the Lord, he never went back on it. Now he has many arguments with the Lord, and they're the most interesting arguments, probably contained in Scripture. When he says to the Lord, as he does here, are you going to be like a deceitful book, waters that fail to me? He has arguments with the Lord again and again uh, about the Lord's dealings with him, but he never goes back on his surrender. Never. Once he has devoted himself to the Lord, he goes through. Now the second thing you find about Jeremiah's character is that there, it, it, it is the product of an inwrought work of the Holy Spirit. Now what do we really mean? In this preparatory ministry, there's got to be an inwrought work. It cannot just be um, truth, you know. It cannot just be ministry of the word. Now that's how you could tell preparatory ministry and that which is just uh, uh, word of God uh, being uh, voiced by people uh, in Christian circles. Uh, preparatory ministry is always identified with the man himself. The man himself is identified with his ministry. There is something about the man and his ministry which uh, is harmonized. They are absolutely linked. Um, uh, it's true. It rings true. Now, you will find this in, in Jeremiah's life right the way through. Look at chapter 5 and verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. The prophets shall become wind, and the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done unto them. And then 5.31. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule at their hands. That is by, by their false prophecy. And my people love to have it so. Now, perhaps you don't see quite what we're getting at here. But the interesting point is this. You've got the priesthood and it's corrupt. You've got the, prof the prophets, they're corrupt. So God takes the man who is both. He is a priest and he is a prophet. And he makes him an absolutely genuine priest through and through, standing before God and standing before the people, mediating between God and man and man and God. And he makes him a true, genuine prophet, expressing the mind of the Lord in absolute fearlessness. Now, you see, Jeremiah was the answer of God in his day. Here were two great institutions, if you like, which were supposed to represent God. On the one side, priests, who were supposed to stand between the people and God, and God and the people. They were supposed to represent God. And the prophets, who were supposed to express the mind of God, to bring the word of God. And both were utterly corrupt. So what does the Lord do? He works deeply in a man who is in himself both prophet and priest. And he makes him, if he's the only one, he makes him his answer. So that 
every, he's the redeeming factor in, in the country. People can say, well, that's what a priest should be, Jeremiah. That's what a prophet should be, Jeremiah. If you look at chapter 18, verse 1, you will uh, read a story which you all know well. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Chapter 19, verse 1, Thus said the Lord, Go and buy a potter's earthen bottle and take of the elders of the people and of the elders of the priests. And then a little later on in that chapter, you know what happens. He has to break the bottle, the potter's vessel, in front of them. He goes down to the potter's house. He sees the vessel being made. He sees it marred in the hand of the potter. And he sees the potter make out of that marred vessel another one. Then he's told to take a made one, a completed one. And he's to take these people to smash it in front of them. And what exactly is the idea? Look at chapter 28, verse 10. Then Hananiah, the prophet, took the bar from off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. So Jeremiah had evidently been going around for some time with a great wooden yoke on his neck. Uh, why? Uh, then if you look at chapter 32, verse 11, So I took the deed of purchase, both which was sealed according to the law and the custom. Now, that was the chapter we read together. Now, what is the, quite the meaning of all this? The meaning is a very wonderful one. There is, in actual fact, another reference. I've only selected one or two. There's another one where he's told to get a waste cloth, a loin cloth, as it were, a waste cloth. And he's told to take it to a village uh, nearby, uh, which had the same name as the name Euphrates, uh, and he was told to bury it. Go there a little while later, and he found it was ruined. Then the Lord said to him, this is what my people is like. Now, what was the Lord doing with all these symbolic uh, acts? He was expressing one simple thing, that it was not just um, uh, a words, but there had to be something about the prophet himself which, which, which was in his ministry. He was absolutely identified. He had to act the thing now. You see, he had to actually act it. The most wonderful um, evidence for this is when he's in a dungeon. He's at the end. Jeremiah, uh, Jerusalem is about to be besieged. It's going to be overthrown, raised to the ground. People have been eating their own children uh, within the city walls. Famine had taken its toll. Pestilence was everywhere. For almost two years, there'd been no water got into that. So they'd relied upon the systems within. No food had got in. People had lived on everything and anything they could within. It was, the, it was the hour of the greatest darkness for the people of God. And inside the city, in a dungeon, was Jeremiah dying, as it were almost, left. And it was at that point that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah. And he said at the worst point in his history... And in the worst point on the history of God's people, he said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you're to, you're to buy a little plot of land just outside the city walls uh, in, a, in a little town, your town called Anathoth. But Jeremiah may well have said, what am I doing buying a bit of ground? That you've told me my whole life's been spent in telling these people that the land's going to be raised, that it's, they're all going to be taken away. Why do you want me to buy a little bit of ground? The Lord says, Jeremiah, you're to buy a little bit of ground. Your uh, cousin is going to come and uh, he's going to uh, 
He's going to offer it to you. You're to buy it. Now, why was he buying it? Because Jeremiah was in himself a testimony. What was he a testimony to? To the fact that God was going to restore the people and that that plot of ground which he was buying at the worst point in their history was a, 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 a little expression of faith that the whole land was going to be recovered and that the city would one day be rebuilt and that people would once again be back, just at the point where everything was going to be obliterated. You see, the, the uh, principle of uh, these men is that there must be an inwrought work within them. There must be absolute reality. You look at chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1, verse 3. When I contend with thee, righteous art thou, O Lord, when I contend with thee, yet would I reason the cause with thee. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore all they that are e that all they at ease that deal very treacherously? In verse 3, but thou, O Lord, knowest me, thou seest me, and triest my heart toward thee. And then if you look at chapter 20. Verse 7. O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocketh me. And so he goes on. You read right through the rest of that chapter. You see, what is the, what is the basis of an inwrought work of God? If God's going to do something inside of us, reality. Absolute reality. Nothing false, nothing taken on, nothing which is not true. Jeremiah had to be the answer of God himself to his people in his day. There had to be something about him which absolutely rang true. And this is absolutely true of any preparatory ministry for recovery. And the basis of that is reality. Absolute reality. You know, I believe that was found when Jeremiah was first called. He didn't preen himself. He didn't think he, uh, he was a great man. He said straight away, Oh, Lord, I'm only a child. What can I do? That wasn't just a little bit of false modesty, as many of us, when we were asked to do something, I can't do that. Um, that was real. I believe Jeremiah was absolutely real. It's a point of character. Then identification with the need. Now, this is a very important point. And it's part of the character that we see in Jeremiah. Chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. I will read it to you. But the shameful thing hath devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons, their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. Let our confusion cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth, even unto this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Now, we might well have said, but Jeremiah, you mean you, or they, not we. You look at chapter 10, verse 23 and 24 again. Chapter 10, 23, 24. Chapter 10, 23 and 24. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. O Lord, correct me, but in measure, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. Pour out thy wrath upon the nations that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name. 
And why is Jeremiah saying, O oh Lord, correct me, but in measure, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing? He has no need to say that. Then in chapter 14, again, the last reference to it. 14, verse 7. Though our iniquities testify against us, work thou for thy name's sake, O Lord. For our backslidings are many, we've sinned against thee. O thou hope of Israel, the saviour thereof, in the time of trouble, why shouldest thou be as a sojourner in the land, and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? And so on. Now, my point is this. One of the essential characteristics of this ministry is its complete identification with the people for whom it has a message of judgment. I shudder when I hear people pray for the rest of the Lord's people as they. They are so superficial. They are so shallow. They are so poor. Oh Lord, do something in them. This goes right to the very root of this matter. You see, it doesn't matter if you've got Jeremiah, it doesn't matter if you've got Ezekiel, it doesn't matter if you've got Daniel, they all pray, we. You remember Daniel's great intercessory prayer in chapter 9, uh, ninth chapter of Daniel, where he says, we have said, oh Lord, we have done this, we have done the other. You see, there's a complete identification with the need, with what it sees. A most important point in this character uh, of Jeremiah um, is just simply that. Um, it is the complete identification with the need. I think it's most important that we should just see that. And then one other thing, perhaps, I don't know whether we will go on much further this evening, um, is spiritual discernment and boldness. In chapter 1 and verse 10, we read it a little earlier, his ministry was to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to, to build and to plant. Now, another essential part of this character of Jeremiah was his discernment. Now, we could say a lot about discernment this evening, because discernment is vital. And I always think it's a tragedy when people think that discerning people can only be done when they criticize others. So often discernment leads to a critical spirit. In Jeremiah, his, his unbelievably sharp discernment never led to an attitude that somehow severed him from those that were going to be judged. It, it's one of the great tragedies of, of any def ministry of definition that when people begin to see uh, what is right and what the Lord wants and what is wrong and what the Lord doesn't want, then they begin to, to sort of criticize and uh, become superior and condescending. And there's a nasty spirit comes in, in the whole atmosphere and attitude uh, to those others of the Lord's people. Now, you can see why it is so necessary to have spiritual discernment and, and boldness. You see, get this clear. 
Jeremiah's ministry was thoroughly destructive. There is no man whose ministry is more destructive in one sense than Jeremiah. His ministry was two-thirds destruction. Pluck up, break down, overthrow, destroy. You see, his was a tremendously destructive ministry. Destructive to be constructive. That's why. He had to clear ground. He had to get away the rubble. He had to smash false ideas, erroneous thoughts, and so on. That's the character that you find uh, in Jeremiah. Well, so often... You don't get this. Either you get people so identified with the need in a sentimental way that they, they don't feel it's right to say a single thing about it, let alone define what's wrong. Or you get people who are so utterly clearing what is all wrong and how it's all, as it were, off the road, off the track, not what the Lord would have, uh, that there's no identification with them as uh, blood brothers and sisters. Um, I think we'll leave it there uh, tonight, although we have not finished. Uh, we'll leave it there. You see, the, 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 the essential message of this book of Jeremiah is the man. And when we see his character, when it comes to us, we begin to discover that there's a lot that would correct us, as well as encourage us. Uh, it is a surrendered character. It is a character that's been produced by an inwrought work. It's not natural. It's in an inwrought work. Jeremiah has been made to go against the stream and the current of his day. And not only just to plough against it in some sort of naturally courageous, uh, sort of individualistic way, independent way, but, but a man who is himself a rather soft man, a rather affectionate, sympathetic person, who was uh, really made to be popular is by the very work of God within made to be uh, one like a rock uh, to try and stem the current that's flowing the other way. Um, that's Jeremiah, an inwrought work. But in it all, though his ministry is one of, of uh, judgment and of desolation, he is one who is utterly identified with the people. It is most interesting, I believe I mentioned before in our introductory comments to Jeremiah, that even when he comes to talk about Moab, he breaks down. There comes a point where he says, oh, I wail for Moab. I can't go on any longer. He's the kind of man, you see, who is identified with the people to whom he brings his message. He does not easily speak of judgment to them. He does not delight to deal with these uh, sort of severe subjects. So many people have got a feeling that somehow they delight to talk about judgment. They revel in it. Jeremiah's not that kind of man. He's identified with the need. And there is about him a spiritual discernment. We must not think that because of that, because he's always talking about we have sinned, we have done that, we have done the other, that uh, therefore he's uh, a little bit sort of sentimental and hasn't quite seen uh, clearly. It's not so at all. He's seen only too clearly. His is a discernment. And when he comes down to it, there's no one so very severe, no one so very, so very clear, and no one who's so utterly faithful to the Lord as Jeremiah. Well, may the Lord just help us 
to be able to distinguish in our day that which might be and is in the hands of God such a kind of ministry.